Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. So we're continuing on with our Colossians series, only a couple more weeks to do on this. Now, I'm, I'm hopefully going to be encouraged this morning. Who has read the letter to the Colossians? Okay, right. So, what is it that you're scared of? Your homework, if you remember, was to read this very small letter in your Bibles. That's the square book by the side of your bed, or it's on your phone. Now, seriously, um, I do encourage you to sit down, find 15 minutes to read this letter through, all the way through, because it's a beautiful piece of writing. And uh, when you read it from top to bottom, as Paul intended, when he wrote it to that church all those thousands of years ago, you get the flavour of his heart and his intent. And often we dissect the Bible into sections and verses and chapters, and we don't get the, the power in the writing. Now, the Bible wasn't written uh, in the format you currently hold it. It was a series of writings that have been brought together over time. And this is one letter written by one man at a point in history to try and encourage believers. And if you're a believer, you need encouragement, yeah? Mm, you do. We live in difficult times. You need encouragement. And the people in, 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 in Colossae were also needing encouragement. So Paul wrote to them, and he poured his heart into this letter. And uh, it's not a dry thing. It's not a dusty thing. It's a man trying to communicate God's heart and God's love to a people group who are far away that he couldn't be physically present with. So he writes to them. And we all love receiving letters, don't we? We all love receiving cards and bits of encouragement that come our way. So imagine this letter's been written to you and sit down and spend some time reading through it. And maybe God will spark a fresh love for your Bible. Maybe God will spark a fresh interest uh, in all these beautiful writings that are between those two covers. So, uh, so who's going to do that this week? Great. Three, four, five. I've got your faces. I've got your names. Okay. <laughs> Okay, we're going to continue on uh, looking at uh, the next section. So we're reading from Colossians 3.15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so I want to talk today about the rule of Jesus, the rule of Jesus in our hearts. When we choose to follow Jesus, a number of things take place. We go through a a number of steps. The first thing that we do is that we choose to believe. We believe that Jesus is who he said he was. We believe that he went to, came to earth, God came to earth in the form of a man, fully God, fully human. We read the Gospels in our Bibles and we believe that the man revealed on these pages was who he said he was. He is and was the Son of God. And then, once we've believed, we choose to receive. We receive God's gift to us, which is basically his forgiveness, his reconciliation. We choose to accept what Jesus did through the cross. We choose to believe those words in, uh, that, that, uh, that Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, 
whoever believed in him basically will be forgiven and have eternal life. We believe and we receive. The third thing that happens, and I think this is the thing that lots of us struggle with, is we, we let God relieve us from our job of being in charge of our lives. We, we basically say to Jesus, I'm now going to submit to your leading. I'm now going to submit to your lordship. And that third stage is often where we really struggle. Because many of us are okay in believing who Jesus is. Many of us are okay in receiving the work of the cross and forgiveness and reconciliation. But lordship is a whole different story. Moody, the famous preacher, said people need one conversion for their souls and one conversion for their wallet. And that's just one place where we struggle with lordship. We struggle in the area of our resources and our finances. Can we surrender and submit those to God? So lordship is a thing that often we struggle with, the rule of Christ in our hearts and in our lives. But this is where the rubber really hits the road. Because the other two, the receiving and the believing, are actually quite hidden. They're internal things. But the lived out lordship of Christ is a very visible thing. And this is where people look at us and say, well, what does a Christian look like? And they look at us and they make a choice and they make a decision. They make a viewpoint. So Paul says to the Colossians and says to us today, if you receive Christ and you believe in him, you have a new ruler in your heart. And that ruler is Jesus. Let him rule. That's what Paul's encouragement is to the Colossians and to us. Let him rule. If you believe who he he said he was and you believe that he's the most godly, wise person ever to walk the earth, then let him rule. Let him rule your life. And that rule starts internally in your heart. You've got a new ruler and he's the prince of peace. Let his peace and life rule in your heart. So I encourage you today at the end of worship tonight to kind of bring yourself to stillness and to quiet. Because most of the week we're running around like headless chickens, aren't we? So much to do, so much to think about, so much to process, so many responsibilities, so many worries and stresses. And that time at the end of worship is one of the few times where we can come to quiet and stillness and and restate and remind ourselves that Jesus is actually Lord. And he's Prince of Peace, and he wants to bring our souls rest and to quiet. So that's why I encourage you in those activities, because all these things are constantly pressing in. All these other things are looking to rule your life, are looking to rule your soul and rule your heart. And they're shouting for their, your attention. It's called a tyranny of the urgent. <laughs> all these urgent things are trying to get your attention, trying to rule your life. But Jesus says... Be still and know that I am God. Come to quiet and remember who's in charge. Remember who's the ruler. And for Christians and for believers of Christ, this is where it all starts. It starts in the inner place. It starts in that place of letting God rule our hearts because we can't live out of something that isn't happening internally inside of us. And for Paul, the ancient world, they believed the heart to be the place where the soul was. It wasn't the physical organ that pumps blood around your body. They believe the heart was the place of the soul, where the emotions are, where, where you are. Close your eyes for a moment and just think about you. Think about where you are this morning. Have you found yourself? Have you found yourself? Can you think about you? Right in that inner part, recognise where you are this morning. 
That's where Jesus wants to be. That's where Jesus wants to rule, right in that innermost part of where you are, where you live in the interior life. And that's where his words, I want his words to land this morning, in that place. That's where Jesus wants to bring his peaceful rule and reign, right in the centre of who you are. Okay, open your eyes again. That's where Christianity starts, right in that innermost place of our soul. But it doesn't stay there. It starts there. We're transformed from the inside out, and then we live out of that place of inner rule. We get changed on the inside, and that changes the way we live on the outside. That peace comes out and transforms us and transforms our relationships, transforms the way we interact with the world. Anybody know who these parts belong to? You're all very good, Mr. Potato Head. (laughs) Paul says, as members of one body, you are called to peace. And sometimes Christians approach life like the pieces on the the right-hand side of this picture. They they think of it as an individual thing. You know, Christianity is all about being an individual and an individualistic approach to faith. But actually Paul says, no. You are, when you come to Christ and you receive and you believe and you, and you hand over lordship, actually he binds you together, he grafts you together into a family. You're no longer an individual piece. You're actually part of a body. Maybe not that body, but you're part of a body. <laughs> and as a family, we get to express this inner peace that Christ has given us in the way that we connect together as a body. The body we call the church. That's what Jesus created. It wasn't man's idea. This is a spiritual thing this morning. You are connected together as believers in Christ as his body. That's what Jesus said happens when we come to him. Paul unpacks this body metaphor in one of his letters to the Corinthian church. He says, if an ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, it would, for not that reason, stop being part of the body. Or he says, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. And what Paul is saying is he loves this body metaphor. We're connected together when we let God's rule come into our hearts. So whenever I meet a Christian who's kind of living life on their own, the first question I'm asking myself is, have they really submitted to Christ? Because being in church sometimes is tricky. It can be frustrating. You get to bump bump shoulders with people that don't think like you, that don't act like you. You get to, uh, you know, you get to have little discussions with people who may not hold the same opinion as you. But what's happening there is Christ is demonstrating that he's in the process of reconciling all things. And he starts by squishing people together that aren't like each other. And he squishes them together in his body called the church. And he does that for a good reason, because that's where you get to live out the rule of Christ. That's where you get to find out whether this thing is real or not. Can you get along with somebody who's not exactly like you, who doesn't think exactly like you, maybe doesn't come from the same background as you? And that's what God does when he puts us together in this body called the church. And that's why we encourage everybody who comes to Riverside, if you don't stay here and find this to be a home, make sure you go and find somewhere that is your home. Don't float around. Don't float around. You need to be connected to a body because that's where you get to figure out what it is to have Jesus as Lord of your life. You get to be an eye or a hand or a foot or an ear or a head. Not a head, Jesus is the head. You get to be all the other bits. 
And basically, you get to be part of his body. You get to function and use your gifts and your talents. You get to encourage and be encouraged. So we're created to be part of this body, and we're created this body that's called to peace. At the time Paul wrote his letter, there was a thing in place called the Pax Romana. And Rome had conquered a lot of the ancient world in the Mediterranean. And they had all these different uh, countries and nationalities under their control. And they put in place a thing called the Pax Romana. That said, basically, all this place is now at peace. And so the everyday person could get on with life and, and, and the everyday business of life without being worried about war or conflict. So the Pax Romana allowed people to flourish within the Roman Empire. And what Paul is saying within the church, there should be a, a Pax Christiana. There should be a peace within the church that allows believers to flourish alongside each other. It's there to prevent infighting and conflict and division. Most of Paul's letters that he wrote to the church in the ancient world were dealing with conflict and division. Already, the church was barely 50, 60 years old, and it was already fighting itself. So Paul says, let there be a peace that rules in the church so we can get on with the business of ministry. We can get on with the business of serving and blessing our communities. And this peace is a bit like having Jesus as umpire. He's kind of here as umpire, ruling in our hearts individually and collectively. And so we don't choose to rule each other in and out. We choose to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. We let him guide us and we let him love us. And we let, we, it creates a security in the church. So let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. And Paul goes on to say, Paul wants the message of Christ to be the preoccupation of the Colossians. When we sing worship, we're not only just singing songs, we're actually singing truth. We're reminding ourselves of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's going to do. And this was still true for the ancient church. Paul says, let songs be a way of actually encouraging you into the truth of Jesus. Admonishing is an interesting word. It's quite an old-fashioned word. We don't see it very often. But it means to gently reprove. And that, imagine I'm walking very close to the edge of this stage. And you think, oh, that's a bit risky. And you come and gently pull me back and say, don't walk so close to the edge. Imagine this was a 100-foot cliff. You'd want to quickly grab me back, wouldn't you? You'd want to pull me back from the edge. And that's what this word means, to reprove. It means to, to gently encourage each other away from danger, away from the edge. So you need to have people in your life who can gently encourage you away from the edge. When they think you're walking too close to the edge of something, you need people who can love you enough and be honest with you enough to say, you just need to come away from the edge a little bit. I'm going to gently reprove you. I'm going to pull you back from that danger. And that's how the church community is supposed to work. Have you got friends like that? Have you got friends who can be honest with you and reflect back to you, look out for you? That's what Paul sees when he talks about church community here. Let songs rise up in your heart. Let, let, let music and singing be a way to remind you of who God is. So for them, it was the Psalms often put to music and hymns. Songs from the Spirit. Now, you haven't got to be a great singer. You haven't got to be, a, be able to play an instrument to let songs rise up in your heart during the day. Worshipping God, just letting that, that thankfulness bubble up inside our next series is going to be all about worship. 
We're going to spend a, a chunk of time looking at the whole aspect of worship. And uh, we'll see how worship just isn't what happens on a Sunday morning through instruments and music. It's a life lived. We live lives of worship. And that's what Paul is expressing here. Let songs bubble up in your heart of thankfulness to God. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, that covers everything, doesn't it? (laughs) That covers everything that you do in your life. Whatever you do, whatever you do and whatever you say, do it all in Jesus. So whatever and whenever, Paul doesn't see any exclusions. Jesus is through the whole thing because he's Lord of your heart and you're living out of that inner place. So wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you're representing Jesus. That's a scary thought sometimes, isn't it? Whatever you are and whatever you're doing, you're representing Jesus. And this has got two parts. In the name of, it means literally you're an ambassador for Jesus. You are showing people what Jesus looks like. But also in the name of means you carry authority. It means you carry Jesus' power of the Holy Spirit within you to live differently. So you've got the role and the responsibility. You've got both these things in place as you live out of Jesus. So God's given you responsibility and authority to live differently. So when you find yourself in a a difficult situation, whether it's at work or at home, in the community, whatever, with your family, you can call upon the name of Jesus to give you power and grace for that situation. God's given you a way to live differently and to react differently. Because he's the ruler of your heart. And you can do it with thanks. You'll see throughout Paul's letters this theme of thanksgiving. Do it all with thanks. Keep thanking God. Keep remembering God. Keep thanking God. Live with gratitude. And often I think we forget when we leave church on a Sunday that God has empowered us to live differently. You've got a way to live differently. You don't have to go with the flow. You don't have to just go in with the crowd. You don't have to fall in with the culture. You don't have to do all that. You can live differently. If you've got a grumpy load of work colleagues at work, you don't have to be grumpy with them. You can be different. You can can give thanks. You can be be gracious. You You can show gratitude. You're empowered to live differently. I think Paul's painting a beautiful picture of church community here. It's a community of peace and encouragement and thankfulness, everyone living under the headship of Jesus Christ. So Paul now goes from the church and he takes it into the home. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. So Paul moves from the church to the house, to the home. Behind closed doors is where we really are what we really like, aren't we? If we had little GoPros fitted in our houses and it showed what we were like behind closed doors, who'd be, who'd be up for that? Nobody. Okay. <laughs> Paul knows that in the home is where we truly are who we truly are. And so he's moved from the church setting now into the home setting, into the house setting. Because Jesus is not only the head of the church, 
he's head of the house. And so we now go behind closed doors into the home, into the family, and Paul begins to talk about this. And at the time this letter was written, the Jews and the Romans would often have house rules. You know, how this house works, that have house rules for their particular household. And so Paul kind of sets out some rules in a similar style. But not only that, in a Roman household, the patriarch had the power of life and death over every person in the house. See some of the men here nodding, I think that sounds good. (laughs) So the patriarch could literally choose who lived and died in their household. But Paul says that's all changed because Jesus is now head of the house. And when Jesus is head of the house, everything changes. Everyone now has to submit to Jesus' way of doing things. And this is really groundbreaking because at the time when this letter was written, you know, patriarchy and the way houses were run were very, very clear. So Paul's saying that's now going to change because Jesus is the head of the house. And Jesus' rules aren't based on self-assertion. They're based on this selfless giving. So everything changes behind closed doors. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. If ever a verse has been misused in the world, it's been this one. Oh, the men have loved this verse for centuries. They've loved it. It's been misconstrued and misused to keep women in their place, to subjugate women over centuries. Paul isn't advocating that husbands be dominant over their wives. And if you read the letter, you could see how it clashed with the whole tone of the letter for suddenly this verse to pop up that said, actually, husbands, dominate your wives. What we learned from the letter? Who's in charge? (laughs) That was said with real confidence. Jesus (laughs) is in charge. Jesus is the ruler. Jesus above all and through all. Remember that first, that poem in the start of the letter? That big poem? Remember that poem? You do remember the poem. Tell me you do. (laughs) Paul has told us that Jesus is head over everything. He's head over the universe. He's head over the church. He's head over the family. And so suddenly, for him to say, actually, husbands, now you're in charge, it would clash with the whole tone of the letter. The submission that's talked about here is not wives become doormats. Wives become slaves to your husbands. Paul states in other letters throughout the New Testament what he feels about women, what he feels about the equality. In our All One series we just finished, We looked at Galatians 3.28, didn't we, in depth, that passage in Galatians where Paul says, There's neither Jew nor Gentile, nor slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. So what's Paul saying here then? What is he saying? Well, to understand that verse, we need to get this verse in context. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Paul In this section here, does this pairing thing. There's always these two sides, two sides of a coin. And so we have have a pair. And we see this pairing reoccurs with parents and children and slaves and masters. But for now, it's husbands and wives. So this is about not one person in a committed relationship being dominant over the other. The wife, Paul is saying, must simply forgo her temptation to try and rule her husband. And the husband must always ensure 
he puts his wife first, puts her interests first. He's not harsh with her. With our modern understanding of relationships, we could quickly switch this around. We could say to the husband, don't try and rule your wife's life. And wife, don't try and dominate or subjugate your husband. Neither party is called to be controlling or ruling the other person. We could say the same in a same-sex relationship. Both parties mutually serving and consenting under Christ's headship. Don't try and rule each other. That's Jesus' job. So what Paul is doing here is advocating mutual love and respect between the parties. He sums this up in his letter to the Ephesians when he says this in verse 21 in chapter 5. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's our golden standard. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there's a mutual circle of loving submission and service taking place in a relationship. No one person rules because that ruling is left to Jesus Christ. And so we see this beautiful pairing taking place between these two verses. And I'm sorry that one has been taken out of context so many times and used as a stick to hit ladies over the head with. So on behalf of the church, I apologise. Paul breaks new ground, secondly, by talking about children. He actually addresses children directly, which is really countercultural. He actually writes and says, children, listen up. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. We mainly put a caveat in here for teenagers. Um, <laughs> again, he pairs this with fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Paul again advocates a circle of acceptance and love and serving and submission. A parent who is obedient to Jesus is more likely to produce the sort of loving, caring, valuing environment where a child can grow and develop. And that should in turn help a child respond in loving obedience. I do say teenage years maybe need a caveat, but on the whole, if we're living under Christ's rule behind closed doors as parents or as carers, then that should create the sort of environment where a child can lovingly respond to that environment. Conversely, a parent who embitters, that word there means provokes to anger. So a parent who's critical or belittles, or nags, or is discouraging, is more likely to create an environment where a child rises up against that in rebellion or disobedience, trying to self-assert against that kind of environment. Clearly, there's no golden rules here that Paul is saying around parenting and around children, but he's saying if we let Christ rule in our hearts, then we're more likely to end up with a kind of environment that produces love and service a mutual sort of responsiveness. It's, uh, it's, it's one of the underlying things to try and have a harmonious household. Let Christ rule. And out of that rule, parent. Out of that rule, respond to parents. And Paul says, all this pleases the Lord. All this pleases the Lord. Now we move on to the last members of the house. And these are Slaves. Slaves would have been present in ancient uh, households very regularly. Slaves were there for a whole variety of reasons. Some may have been born into slavery. Their parents might have been slaves. They literally were born into slavery. 
Some may have been captured in warfare. Romans often captured people and put them in to slavery. Um, and some people sold themselves into slavery to pay a debt, to get out of poverty. So people may have been in slavery for all sorts of different reasons. And slavery was so commonplace in the first century when Paul wrote this letter, he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have even thought it was anything different. He doesn't address slavery. He doesn't try and contest slavery. For Paul, this was the water he was swimming in. This was a cultural norm. And so again, unfortunately, people have used the Bible historically to justify slavery. The Bible, doesn't the Bible talk about slavery? Isn't the slavery in the Bible? So therefore, isn't slavery okay with God? And again, we have to remember context is so, so important. When Paul wrote this letter, this was the norm. He would see no reason to address it. He would see no reason to contest it. What he does do is say, slaves and masters, you come under the same headship of Jesus as everybody else does. So I'm going to treat with you equally. So if you wonder why the Bible doesn't speak out against slavery, remember this was written nearly 2,000 years ago when slavery was commonplace. And so we said before, context, context, context is always so important when we apply the Bible to our lives and we understand it. Is that okay? So he says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favour, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as one working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know, what you, since you know that you'll receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does, does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs and there is no favoritism. Masters provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. So Paul sees everyone coming under the same lordship. So slaves also now come under the lordship of Jesus. Jesus is head of the house, not the master. And so he encourages them to turn their their actions into worship. Whatever you do, do it for God. Whether the master is looking at you or whether he's not looking at you, just imagine Jesus is looking at you. That's a great rule for life, actually. Just imagine Jesus is looking at you and, and do it onto him. Do it onto him. Don't just work hard when the master's looking to make it look like you're busy and efficient and then slack off when he's not looking. Anyone, anyone done that work? Anyone? No, of course you haven't. Um, so don't, don't live that way. Live like you have a new master, a new head of the house, Jesus, because he's always present. He's always with you. And he's your new master. He's the reason that you want to work hard and diligently. And do that because it brings pleasure to God. It brings pleasure to God in the secret place. It says that you have an inheritance. What's interesting about slaves, they couldn't inherit property. They had no future inheritance. They couldn't uh, have things passed on to them in the same way that an ordinary person could. So Paul addresses that. So actually, you're not getting an earthly inheritance. You're getting a heavenly inheritance. There's something waiting for you in eternity because of Christ and because you're now under him. He's now the ruler of your life. So don't worry about stuff. Don't worry about earthly stuff because you have a new master. And don't worry about favoritism. Some people get more than you or some people getting less than you. God's a just God and he'll take care of all of that. So don't worry about that. Work onto the Lord. And I love this section because it, it can speak to any one of us, can't it? Whatever context God's put us into, whatever role, job, responsibility we have, 
We work at it onto the Lord because it pleases him. And all those little things and choices you make that no one else sees when you choose to do things well or you choose to serve somebody or help somebody, God sees them and it pleases him because you're living as, he, as if he is head of the house, as if he's your ruler and master. And again, we have this pairing, husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters. Masters provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. A better translation might be masters provide your slaves with what is godly and equal. Be godly in the way that you treat your slaves. Treat them as equals. Treat them as humans. Treat them as people of the same standard. Paul's not protesting against slavery because we said he doesn't, he doesn't recognise slavery as being anything to protest about. But what he does say, he says, Masters, in this new world order where Jesus is head of the house, your slaves are equal with you. Your slaves are equal with you. A slave would often have no rights in the household. They could be treated almost like objects rather than people. But Paul says, now, because of the new head, household head, Jesus, your slaves have equality with you. And they should be treated accordingly. Treat them and treat yourself as if you're both submitted to a new master, Jesus. And so we can see from this section, whatever you were in the ancient household, whether you were a husband or a wife, a slave or a master, a child or a parent, whatever you might be, everyone was submitted to the new head of the house. Everyone was under the lordship of Jesus. And that was transformational. And that was utterly radical for the ancient world. And people must have looked on and thought, what on earth is going on in that household? Why is that patriarch acting that way? Why is that master treating that slave in that way? Why did that couple have that mutuality of a relationship that we've not seen anywhere else? It would have been utterly transformational for the outside world. So, behind your closed doors, is Jesus head of the house? Does he affect the way you do your house rules? Does he affect the way that you live behind those doors? Because he should do. He should do. Because he's, he's head of the church and he's head of the house. He's head of the family. So maybe have a think about that. Have a think about how does he change what happens behind closed doors? How does he change what happens in your relationships and your families? So we've done the church, we've done the family, and now Paul turns finally to the outside world. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how to answer everyone. So Paul's focused in on the, uh, the privileges that they have in Christ, but now he says you've got some responsibilities. You've got some things to live out. This new life in Christ isn't just to be enjoyed for the sake of the person. It's to, be, it's to actually be cascaded out to the people around. And so he says, devote yourself to prayer. Be watchful and thankful. Stay alert. Stay alert, church. Be awake in God. 
be watchful, be thankful, keep your eyes open, look around, what's going on? How can we connect with that? How can we serve? How can we bless? We can't always collate a prayer request with a prayer answer, but we can always be thankful and we can always be prayerful. We can be people of prayer and people of thanks. And why do we need to be awake? Well, because the church is largely asleep when it comes to the things of God. So the church needs to be awake and trying to awaken the world to the things of God. Paul asks the Colossians to partner with him. He asks for a door to be opened, and perhaps he wants the physical door of his jail cell to be opened. He's in prison in Rome, most likely. But also he wants a door of the gospel to be opened. He wants that door in people's hearts to be opened to the message of the good news of Jesus. This mystery of Christ, which he describes, is the fact that the gospel has the power to reconcile people back to God. And that's, that's, the, that's, the, that's what he carries. He carries this mystery, this secret that he wants to reveal to people. He wants to let people know about God's master plan to bring all things back to reconciliation, back to God. And Paul wants the Colossians' lives to reflect, reflect that rule in their hearts. So be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Literally walk in wisdom. I've said to you before, one of the main benefits of the Bible is that it teaches us to live wisely. It doesn't teach us to live religiously. It teaches us to live wisely. And as we advance in years and we walk with Christ, we should grow in wisdom. You painted colours in the sky and made the clouds a tower. Nice. <laughs> we worship, we worship you. We didn't cue that, but it was nice. <laughs> we grow in wisdom. We grow in wisdom. And so Paul encourages us to be wise, to grow in wisdom. And that is a, a witness. To, he calls them outsiders, people outside the church. It's a witness to the people around us. If a friend or a colleague can look at you and say, you seem to be living a wise life, you seem to be living well, then when you tell them about Jesus... You've got some equity. You've got something to, to come from. If your life is all over the road and you're making bad decision after bad decision after bad decision and you say, let me tell you about Jesus, they go, hey, you know, go figure. Walking in wisdom is one of the most profound things that we can do as followers of Christ. It's one of the best witnesses to the mystery of the gospel if you and I can walk in wisdom. A life well-lived is a life that points to Christ. And so Paul says, be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. This is a wonderful word in Greek. It means to snap up a bargain. It means, it's like every day's Black Friday day for Paul in terms of Jesus. Anyone like Black Friday, Amazon Black Friday? Waiting for those bargains, you know, waiting to push that button. Paul sees every day in Christ just like that with that same level of excitement, every opportunity to snap up a bargain and grab an opportunity for Jesus. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Salty conversation was a thing in the medieval world. It meant that you... I'm not touching anything anymore. I'm just walking away. Um, <laughs> salty conversation in the medieval world was, was meant you were interesting. You were engaging in the way you spoke. You're not supposed to be boring as a Christian. Yeah? You're not supposed to be arrogant and brash. 
You're supposed to be salty. So when you engage with someone in conversation, I think, oh, that's interesting. That person's engaging. That's kind of a, that person's got kind of a colourful life, a vibrancy about them. <laughs> You're all looking at It's like Dawn of the Dead looking at him. No, something. <laughs> you're supposed to be salty. Because Paul knows that if you're boring or you're brash or you're arrogant or you're... That's not going to engage anyone with the mystery of the gospel, is it? So season, season your conversation with salt. Make sure you've got something interesting to tell someone about God, about Jesus. What are the stories? What are the things that will engage somebody? Salty speech. Speak in a way that people want to listen to what you have to say. It doesn't mean you have to suddenly become an extrovert or someone, a stand-up comedian, but it does mean that when you try and convey something about Jesus, it at least comes across as semi-interesting. <laughs> oh, I go to church on a Sunday. <laughs> you know it. You've all been there. So what this means, as far as Christ, we're called to live rich, Colourful, vivid lives, aren't we? We're called to live lives that are full. Uh, and, and we can talk about those lives. And we can talk about... And I love people who come into Riverside because we can talk about what happens here. We can talk about some of the fun things that happen here and the, and the great things that happen. It's a great place to talk salty about Jesus because there's so many things we can point to or describe or engage with. And Paul says, make sure you've got enough to answer somebody. Make sure you know enough about your faith so if someone asks you about it, at least you can string a cohesive sentence together. Why did you go to church on a Sunday? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Why do we? Why do you follow a person called Jesus? At least think about how you would answer that question or how you would want that question to be answered if you were asking it. Spend a little bit of time thinking about how you would convey your faith to someone in non-religious language, in a salty way that they would want to listen to. Your story, your own story, is one of those powerful things you carry because no one can take that away from you. It's your story. No one can deny your story. So you can often start with, your, for me, it started like this, and it happened this way. And, you know, and even if you've been brought up in church, there'll be, there'll be key points in your life when you can say, actually, for me, this is the time... I recognise that Jesus wanted to be more in my life, or this is the point at which, and, and think about those times. And that can be your salty speech with somebody. That can be the way you convey your faith in an interesting and engaging way. You don't have to become a theologian. You don't have to become someone who you know, studies every aspect of, of Christian theology, but do have a little bit of understanding. Like I've said this morning, well, for me, I, I believe that Christ is real. I receive the work on the cross. I surrender my life to him. Whatever language you want to use to describe the mechanics of Christianity, really important. Because someone's going to come to you one day and ask you why you live like you do. And if they don't, you're living wrong. Okay? If they don't ask you why you're living like you do, then you're living wrong. Because you should be living in a way that creates questions, that provokes questions. Because you've got a different head of the house. So Paul comes into land now um, in this section. I just wanted to say that Christianity is never a cul-de-sac. It never stops with you. It never stops with me. 
And again, the church has often made this mistake. You know, I, I've, I've become a Christian. I've become part of a great church. I'm just enjoying life. I'm parked here. That's that. But actually, Christianity is never a cul-de-sac in any person's life. It's always a through road. It's always a through road. You're, just, you're part of passing on the mystery of Christ to the next person. It never stops with you. Because if it stopped with you, if it stopped with the Colossians back in AD 60, then that cascading of the Christian faith across the whole face of the earth would never have taken place. If they hadn't taken on Paul's encouragement to go out and, and, and live in a way and speak in a way and, and be engaging and captivating, people would have never caught that mystery of the gospel. It would never have cascaded on and travelled out from the, the Mediterranean and reached the British Isles and onwards. It never stops with you or me. It's never a cul-de-sac in our lives. So think about that. Think about Jesus' rule in your life. Think about yourself as a through road onto the next person, onto the next thing. And this whole series has been about you and me living in the now as if we believe Jesus was ruling our life. As if we believe that actually Jesus is over all things as if we think God is going to bring it all together at the end of time. It's living now in the truth of that reality, not waiting for a future, not waiting for something to change. It's living now in the truth of what we read in Paul's letter to the Colossians. Paul said, you and I can be different because Jesus is in charge. And he rules differently. He does things differently. And he lets us do things differently. And when you live differently... People say, why do you live that way? What's going on in your life that makes you find peace in this situation? Be thankful when everyone else is grumbling. Offer wisdom when I'm struggling to know which way to go. When Jesus is head of the house, it changes everything. It's all about perspective. So I thought you might enjoy a couple of videos on perspective this morning. So here we go. Have a look at these. These are good fun. I think you've got control, mate, now. I'm, I'm, I'm done up here. So we're in this darker room to show off this next illusion with the three chairs. I want you to try to spot the difference between one of these chairs. One is not like the other. We have the green chair, the blue chair, and the red chair. Got your selection. I'm going to reveal in three, two, one. So the blue chair, if you watch it very closely, right now it's doing this weird like trippy following the camera motion wherever it goes. And the reason it's doing that is because it's 3D printed and engineered in a way that it's actually pointing the opposite direction. So the illusion doesn't break apart until you get to see the other side. Trippy, huh? Let's move on to the next illusion. This is one of my favorite illusions. It's called an anamorphic illusion. And while technically it lies flat on the ground, it's one that comes alive when you line up the camera in the right position. This is called the three-legged bar stool, and it's originally designed by a guy named Josh Carmody out of Melbourne, Australia. It looks like a three-legged bar stool, right? But when I put my hand through here, it does this weird thing where the reason it puts my hand in front is because it's got a fourth leg right here. It's all about the design from the perfect perspective. Cool, eh? You had to spot the edit on the chair one. There was a very clever edit there, but you, you wouldn't have seen it. Perspective changes everything. That's what those videos are all about. The perspective changes everything. And so what Paul is trying to get across in this letter is if you get a fresh perspective, if you get the Jesus perspective, it changes everything. It changes the way you look at everything. It changes the way you approach 
everything. Change the way you relate to everything. With those perspectives, if you move too far to the left or to the right, the perspective changes and the illusion is ruined. But with Jesus, it doesn't matter which way you look at him from. It's always a perfect perspective. And it can be the same for us. Once we get it into our heads and our hearts that Jesus really is who he said he is, and he really is in charge, and he really can come and rule our hearts and rule our lives, then it changes everything. That's what lordship is about. That's what being a follower of Jesus is about. It's about complete and utter change of perspective. It changes the way you see yourself. It changes the way you see other people. It changes everything. And so why don't we stand, if you're able, let's just spend the last couple of minutes just helping Jesus... Sorry, help open our hearts to what Jesus wants to say in that. Just You might have been around church a long, long time, and you might need a fresh perspective. You might be a comparatively new person of faith, and you're just figuring out what this perspective is all about. There are no tricks or funny camera angles with Jesus. It's the reality of him in our lives. It's true. Jesus joins us together in one body. He calls us to peace. He calls us to thanksgiving. He calls us to live a life well lived in wisdom. He calls us to live as if he is head of the house. And he asks us to partner with him in sharing the mystery of the good news of Jesus. To let our lives be, a, be an advert to the people around us. And all this flows out of that inner rule in our hearts. So I spent a couple of minutes this morning just, just saying to Lord, to Jesus, just, Lord, just come and be ruler of my heart again this morning. Come and be ruler of my heart. Come and change me from the inside out. All those things that, that clash against you or rise up against you, we just... Give them to you this morning, God. We want to submit to your headship. We know that your headship is perfect. That you are the one who can lead us and guide us. You are the wisest person who ever lived. And God, we want to submit to your wisdom this morning in every area of our lives. And God, help us practice that this week. Help us live out of your lordship. Help us remember that you're present in all things. That whatever we do, Word or deed, we do it all for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.